0: Please take a copy of God's word and turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and a few verses today as we continue to um, plod along here in this, what has been called the greatest chapter of the Bible. Um, I'm going to just let you know now we're reading up to verse 8. But just so I don't get questions afterwards or complaints or um, accusations, we're reading verse 8, but we're really going to take up verse 8 next week in connection with what follows in verse 9. So um, it, it certainly goes along with uh, the uh, passage we're looking at, but we'll, we'll spend more time unpacking it next week, the Lord willing. Uh, so for today, verses 5 through 8 of Romans chapter 8. This is the word of God. Let us give it the attention that it deserves. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the flesh fails. The word of our Lord remains forever. The American humorist Robert Benchley back in the early 1900s was purported to have said that there are only two types of people in the world. Those who believe there are only two types of people in the world and those who don't. I'm glad that gave you a little bit of a chuckle. Um, The one actually that gave me a chuckle throughout the whole week as I thought about it is um, there are only two types of people in the world. Those who can extrapolate from incomplete data. So he says there are only two types of people in the world. Those who think there are two types of people and those who don't. Paul would certainly be in the Former category, right? As he, in the verses we've just read, separates the entire host of humanity, past, present, and future, into one of two categories here in, in Romans 8, 5, and 6, and 7. Um, according to Paul, and really according to God, there are only two types of people in the world. And that really matters. We really need to recognize that and understand that. For as we're going to see, one of those types of people, one group meets with God's favor and one group meets with his eternal displeasure. So it matters. Uh, So first, let's consider um, how Paul distinguishes these two types of people. Uh, There are, on the one hand, those who live according to the flesh, and on the other, uh, those who live according to the spirit. And to understand this great discrimination, uh, we need to understand the terms that Paul is using. Flesh and spirit. Now, the Greek word for flesh is manifold in its meaning. Uh, in its most basic sense, excuse me. I have this one off. we want to turn the other off. So to understand what Paul's talking about, we want to understand the terms he's using. Flesh and uh, spirit. The Greek word for flesh has many meanings. In its most basic sense, uh, the flesh is that thing you hate when you step on the scale. Uh, The flesh is the thing that gets burnt when you uh, lay out at the beach. Um, But in biblical language, flesh is much more expansive than just uh, the body. Some people miss that and so when they read uh, Romans 8 and Paul speaking of those who live according to the flesh, they assume that he's referring to people who succumb to sins of a particularly physical or sensual nature, like sins like fornication, for example, or gluttony. Uh, think of the way Paul describes the unbeliever in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. He says, their God is their belly. And we think, okay, that's the kind of thing he has in mind when he talks about those who live according to the flesh. Well, it's certainly in view, but it's more expansive than that because flesh, when used in the New Testament, is almost always a term that refers to the entirety of our sinful nature. So, for example, turn to Galatians chapter 5, just a few books over. Galatians chapter 5 and the very famous passage that we know as the fruit of the Spirit Don't forget that before Paul gives us this virtuous list, he gives us a list of vices, and he calls it in verse 19 of chapter 5 in Galatians, the works of the flesh. And this is what we read there. Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Okay, that's what we expected. That's very fleshly kinds of sins. But then he goes on to say it also includes the works of the flesh, idolatry, sorcery, poor, you know, misplaced worship, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, our emotions, the way we interact with others, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and things like these. So the list is far more expansive than simply sins we commit with our bodies or in our bodies. It includes our motivations, it includes our emotions, it includes our ambitions, our relationships, and so in short, to live according to the flesh means to live for oneself and to live for the things of this world. The flesh has as its goal the material and the temporal. The material, the things you can see, and the temporal, the things that are here right now. It sets The flesh sets its uh, sights no higher than the right here and the right now. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that flesh is man left to himself. Man born, developing, and growing in life in this world outside of the activity of God upon him. Man lived without the activity of God upon him. And I think that helps us understand the other category of humanity that Paul refers to. Those who live according to the Spirit are those whom God acts upon. They have the activity of God in their lives. And just like flesh means more than Than those sins which are physical. Spirit means more than somebody who is just very intellectual or philosophical or esoteric or things like that. Paul is not dividing the world into two categories. One category is sinner and the other are monastics, monks. It's not sinners and ascetics. It's not sinners and stoics. No, people who who, um, uh, uh, live according to the spirit, it doesn't mean that they don't, They're not concerned with physical things like food or sex. It means, though, that they have as their primary influence in life the Spirit of God. That's why maybe some of your versions have Spirit. They are capitalized, and it should be, because this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And so there are two types of people. Those who live for this world and nothing else. And those who have the very power of the next world abiding in them. And therefore, they live for something so much greater than what is right here and right now. They live for something so much greater than just themselves. That's what it means to um, live according to the Spirit. To live according to the Spirit. Now, how can you tell the difference between these two types of people? That's our next question. Paul says, interestingly enough, it's in the way that they think. There are two types of people, and they're distinguished by two kinds of mindsets. That's the second thing this morning. First, the two types of people. Second, now the two kinds of mindsets. So look at verse 5 again. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the flesh, the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. In older translations, uh, mind is used as a verb. If you're reading King James, say something like this. For they that are after the flesh do mind things of the flesh. Mind is a verb there. We We don't really talk like that much today, except in at least one phrase that I could think of when we tell somebody, Mind your own business, right? That's the idea here. That the people of the flesh, they mind the business of the flesh, the people of the spirit mind the business of the spirit. It's about how they think, two mindsets. Now, perhaps you're surprised to learn how much significance the apostle places on our thoughts here. You know, after all, isn't what really matters to God what's in our hearts? Isn't that really what he looks upon? Yes, it is. And here's where we need to remember that when the Bible speaks of our thoughts, it is a way that the Bible speaks of our hearts. In biblical terms, mind and heart are synonymous. Uh, The tin man told the scarecrow that my head is quite empty, but once I had brains and a heart also, and so having tried them both, I should much rather have a heart. Well, the Bible doesn't know any kind of dichotomy between head and heart. In fact, the very first sentence in the very first chapter of uh, Craig Troxel—he's a professor at Westminster Seminary with Cliff and Op Minister—his book, he has, a, he has this wonderful book on the heart. And first sentence of the first chapter of the book of the heart, he says this: If your heart principally does one thing and one thing only, it thinks. It thinks. In the Bible, the heart is said to reason, to remember, to reflect to understand, to think. Consider some of these verses. You don't need to turn to them. You can write them down and look them up later. But Jesus says that the heart thinks in Matthew 15, in verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Psalm 139, 23. The content of the heart is paralleled with the content of the mind. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. The heart remembers In Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I'm remembering your word in my heart. My heart is the the seat of my memory, not the brain as we think of it in our terms. Paul says that it's the heart that perceives and understands the things of God. He says that in Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So, we see that's just four examples of how the Bible shows us that the heart is the thinking organ for the um, for the human. And to underscore the seriousness with which the Bible speaks of our thoughts, if you'll see I entitled the sermon, Who Do You Think You Are? But really, um, the principle could be set forth perhaps more... Um, cleverly, more memorably like this. You are what you think. You are what you think. That's the point Paul's making here in Romans 8. Matthew Henry says, the man is as the mind is. The man is as the mind is. So goes the mind, so goes the man. He's saying... You can know what a man is really like. That is, if he belongs to this world or if he belongs to the next, based on what he sets his mind upon. Those who live according to the principles of the flesh will think fleshly thoughts. You know, God said the same thing about the people in Noah's day. Do you remember that? Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, in that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil only continually. Now think about that. What does that mean? Does that mean the people in Noah's day, that you know, they never held their door, held the door for their grandmother? Does that mean they never said thank you or please? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means that nobody had a single thought for God. It means that nobody ever considered eternity. No one could lift their thoughts any higher than the material or the immediate. They were weighed down by the vain evils of this world. And that's what... Paul speaks of in Romans 8, verse 5. To mind the things of the flesh, explains Professor John Murray, is to have the things of the flesh as the absorbing, uh, absorbing uh, uh, objects of our thoughts, interests, affections, and purpose. Let me say that again. It's to have the things of the flesh as the absorbing object of our thoughts, interests, affections, and purpose. And I want to say that this, by definition, must refer to unbelievers. The first half of Romans 8:5, Paul is not talking about what has been called uh, before a carnal Christian. That is somebody who's converted but doesn't really live like it. No, there's no such thing as that. When you're converted, your life changes. The person who sets their mind continually, exclusively on the things of the flesh is an unbeliever. That's what Paul is talking about here. Thomas Watson puts it like this, where the world fills both head and heart, there can be no room for Jesus. So this can't be referring to Christians. No, the Christian, on the other hand, sets his or her mind on the things of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will have the ultimate say in what absorbs our life. Notice, Paul states this as a fact, and that's good news for us. Cling to that. This is a fact that he makes. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, he does not say they should, although that's certainly implied. But first, we need to recognize it's just a fact. This is what will happen when you're converted. But because we still have a sinful nature, even after we're converted, you're going to find, if you haven't already, that your thoughts drift back to the things of this world, into material things, into temporal things. And so it's right for us to understand this is first a declaration, first a statement, but there's embedded a command here that we better set our minds on the things of the Spirit if we claim to be Christians. And it's not just here, it's all throughout the New Testament. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what's the will of God, what is good and perfect. Or... In Philippians 2.5, we sang of this earlier, Paul tells us to have the mind of Christ. Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Again, a command. You must think on these things. How about Colossians 3.2? Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Mind the things that are above. Second Peter 3.18 Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a command. We must grow in knowledge. Henry Ford once made the quip that thinking is the hardest work there is, which is probably the reason so few engage in it. Uh, Christians don't have the luxury to not think. We don't. Any serious reading of the Bible, I just gave you well was that five passages? Romans twelve, two, Philippians two, five, Philippians four, eight, second Peter three, eighteen, Colossians three, two. I just give you five. There's many more. Uh, any serious reading of the Bible shows that to be a Christian is to be one who sets their mind intentionally. It's not just that our our, our, our thoughts wander and are aimless and we, we don't care. No, we actually have to conform our thoughts. We have to take every thought captive to Christ. And so, what is your mindset? Ask yourself that question. What is your mindset? Who do you think you are? Because how you think you are. Paul is saying... That there's a default mode of thinking for everyone. The unbeliever, by default, thinks of the stuff that's bound to this world. That's their default mode of thinking. The Christian, though, who has the down payment of the next world in their hearts, must then, by definition, be drawn to thoughts of the next world. Must be drawn to good thoughts of God, now by a new spirit wrought in nature. But it has to be one of the two. Again, Craig Troxell, he says this, These two different mindsets reveal that there's no neutral gear for the mind. The direction of a person's thoughts cannot be separated from the direction of a person's life. Did you hear that? The directions of our thoughts cannot be separated from the direction of our lives. As goes the mind, so goes the man. So a diagnostic question for us all to ask ourselves today is, What do you think about when you're not really thinking about anything? When you're not really thinking about much at all, where does your mind go? And if you don't know the answer to that, I'll tell you where you can find it. Amazon. Netflix. You realize the Internet knows how you think better than you do. That's why... You know, we get these things that pop up. You might also like, and then Amazon suggests a product that indeed, yes, I would also like. How does it know that? Because it knows what I'm searching. It knows what I'm buying. It knows the direction of my thoughts in this area of of commerce. Or it's why Netflix will say, uh, because you watched blank, you might also enjoy blank. Okay, let's, episode starts in four seconds. I'm not going to find the remote, let it play. They were right, I do like it. Some of us here would be quite embarrassed if others in the room knew the stuff that we watch, that we bought, or that we search for online. Some people in this room would be embarrassed if others knew the suggested purchases, the suggested viewing that was uh, that was uh, brought to our attention by these websites. We would be embarrassed because it would reveal the real direction of our lives that we've been trying to cover up from public perception and scrutiny. But of course, even if we hide it from the world, the Lord searches the heart, and he understands all the intent of the thoughts. That's 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 9. So now I'm going to stop and pause and just ask the question, so why does all of this matter? Paul tells us in our passage, He sets the stakes of of what we're talking about as high as life and death. Look at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So Paul so far has shown us that there are two types of people, and they are distinguished by two kinds of mindsets. And finally this morning we see that these mindsets lead to one of two destinies. Life or death. Now, verse 7, if you look there, explains why it is that to set the mind on the flesh leads to death. Verse 7 gives us the reason. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. This is why it leads to death. Because the person with this mindset is hostile to God. Their enmity against God. King James puts it that way. Enmity against God. They literally hate God. And their hatred is expressed through a willful disregard and disobedience of God's law. They reject God's will for their life and they insert their own will for their life. They value their view on things higher than God. But here's the thing, God always values his glory greater than anybody else. So he does not allow, he does not permit such blasphemy for somebody to be hostile or at odds with him. The essence of sin is to be against God, and we know what the wages of sin is. The wages of sin is death. Now I should add here that I think eternal death is not the only thing envisioned here when Paul says that those who set the mind on the fle- to set the mind on the flesh is death. because when you're controlled by the flesh, uh, everything you do will be marked in some way or another by death or by decay. Now the Greek word for flesh is the word sarx. And there's at least one word most of us know in which that has been translated into, uh, or, or uh, one English word we know where that Greek word has been brought over, and that's the word sarcophagus. right? Sarx, flesh, sarcophagus. Those are those old uh, stone um, coffins associated with ancient cultures, places like Egypt or Rome or Greece. But but I was thinking that that perhaps is a really helpful way to think about what it's like to live according to the to the flesh, according to the sarks. To live according to the sarks, it's to dig your own grave. It's to dig your own grave, to build your own coffin, and to climb in it even before you die. It's to die before you reach death. So, to set the mind of the flesh is death. It's not just eternal death, although it's ultimately that. It's all the ways death and decay infiltrate our life in the here and now. But conversely, those who set their minds on the Spirit, they're at peace with God. There's no hostility. There's no enmity. And to have peace with God is to have life itself. It's as simple as that. Flip back a page or two to Romans 5. In verse 1, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Romans 5.1, Therefore since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our great problem is that by nature we hate God, we're enemies with God, we're not on good terms with God. There is no peace between us and our Maker, but Christ came as our go-between, as our mediator, the one who makes things right between us and God. And what's the basis of that reconciliation? What what could Jesus possibly offer to the offended, holy, almighty God that would sway His view of us? What does Jesus bring to Him to reconcile us to Him? He brings His hands, the wounds. He brings His efficacious blood. You see, friends, when you put your faith in Jesus, His death atones for your sin and washes you clean so that in the eyes of God you are as white as snow and so you can have peace. When you're justified by faith, that means when you look to what Jesus did on the cross, not what you could ever do, you have peace with God. And to have peace with God is to have life. In a hymn entitled Christ Our Peace, Scottish hymn writer Horatius Bonar explores the freeing relief of having a mediator such as Christ. Let me read you a few of these stanzas. He says, I thought I saw an angry, frowning God sitting as judge upon a great white throne. My soul was overwhelmed, but then Jesus showed His gracious face and all my dread was gone. I saw that I was lost, far gone astray. No hope of safe return there there seemed to be. But then I heard that Jesus was the way, a new and gracious way opened up for me. Then in that way, so free, so safe, so sure, all sprinkled over with reconciling blood, will I abide and never wander more, but walk secure in fellowship with God. Those who set their minds on the Spirit walk secure in fellowship with God. And So is that true for you? Do you desire that relationship with the Lord? Lloyd-Jones says that that this is the ultimate mark of a believer. He says this is the thing that the Christian man pursues, that he wants this relationship with God both now and in eternity. And then Lloyd-Jones goes on to make this convicting observation. He says, indeed, this is so true of this man, this Christian, That we are entitled to say of him that everything else becomes relatively unimportant to him. And I don't hesitate to put it as strongly as that. If you cannot say quite honestly that everything else becomes relatively unimportant to you in comparison with this, with this relationship with God, I do not see that you have any right to call yourself a Christian. In other words, this is the thing that establishes that we are Christians. Everything else falls into position because this now is the thing that matters centrally. And if it means that I have to give up everything else in order that I may be right with God, I'm prepared to do it. Now, that might be hard for some of us to hear. Okay, there's no might about it. There's no maybe about it. That's hard to hear. Right? Because what are we thinking? Now I'm thinking, is that me? Is that my life? Is my mindset on the things of God? Am I pursuing after Him as the end all, the be all of my existence? Do I care more about the return of Christ and seeing Him or my next vacation? It can become easy to get so introspective that we despair. So I want to assure you, brothers and sisters in the Lord, dear Christian, I want to assure you today that your status before God is determined by the Spirit of God that's at work in your heart not by the weak will of that heart. And when the Spirit's at work, your thoughts will, coming, will keep coming back to this. Though they stray, and they will stray, they will keep coming back to this. I want God. I want more of God. I want more of Christ. I want to glorify Him It'll be like this magnet that draws you back in. And even though you wander, you can't help but keep being brought back to this central aim. This is what I want, even though I fail so miserably. That's the Christian. Now, there are some of you here today for whom that is not true. You might even be calling yourself a Christian, and yet this is not your experience. You don't have this, this recurring um, desire uh, to please God you don't have thoughts of God that's not your default i want you to be cautious of brushing that reality aside be cautious of excusing that as some sort of uh internal already not yet struggle or some form of christian liberty that you enjoy no i'm a christian i don't need to i mean this is what christ died for i don't i don't need to be filled with thoughts of god but i'll be very careful You see, it could be that you are not converted and that you need to deal with with that today, with God, before you leave this place. Does that sound surprising to you? Is that hard to believe? Well, I want to say that it's worth thinking about. It's worth as much as heaven itself. Your eternal destiny depends on giving this matter your thoughts. Because to set the mind on the things of God is life. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are so good to rescue us from ourselves, from our sinful nature, from corruption. We who have the Spirit, know uh, we still fight against the flesh. And yet we are called to take arms, to mortify the, those sinful thoughts, to be conformed not to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Lord, would we pursue after more and more that which is from your Spirit, so that we would know life and peace. And convict us, Holy Spirit, any of us today, who may be assuming that they are Christians, but in fact do not have that new nature. Lord, we plead that you would bring life to this place today, that you would work a miracle of salvation. For we are unable, we are incapable of doing this on our own. But by your Spirit, you can do all things. So We pray with you to be merciful to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.